1: a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Well, cheers. We cheers. typically have varying uh, alcoholic beverages on these pop podcasts.
2: It's the best way to do a podcast.
1: Normally, I'm drinking good whiskey. Yeah.
2: Are you still a whiskey?
1: Yeah, today like I'm your primary a, good, a really good yeah. beer.
2: That's a... Very fancy. We can pretend it's a whiskey. We could. If, or, or you don't have to tell anyone what it actually is. Well,
1: well, you can go ahead and tell them what I'm drinking.
2: I like your NPR voice. Um, that would be a Bud Light Lime.
1: A Bud Light Lime right here on the beach.
2: Your advocacy of the Bud Light Lime is a little zealous. However, it's not <laughs> incorrect. Okay. It's not incorrect. I do feel like you might be preaching it more as a lifestyle brand. You're right. when you were at the beach... I think you and I agree no one wants to be hammering down a you know chocolate porter correct or anything like that. I
1: did stay away from the white claw. White claws tend mm. to be like huge in it's the hunting liquor. industry. Oh really? Mhm. Really. Here's a stat for okay. you. Okay. The the vast majority No, it's not the vast majority. The largest consumption of white claw in America happens in Bozeman, Montana.
2: That is completely unexpected. If if you would have told me Orlando, Florida.
1: Bozeman, Montana.
2: Why did the hunting industry get into malt liquor seltzer? I have no idea. No idea. This just, I'm sure you got excited about that since your mission is to demystify (laughs) hunting (laughs) and to change the narrative on hunters. I
1: guess, I guess. And you're
2: you're out there just, you know, no laws when you're banging claws. Is that what it is? That's what my 20-year-old coworkers tell me. Really? Yeah. Oh, they or have like big names. Yeah. yeah.
1: I I didn't even know that that was a saying. So you must be closer to white claw than I am.
2: I uh, I'm closer to young people who drink white claw. <laughs> I'm their resident old person for sure. <laughs> yeah, I've never had
1: one. Well, that's typical. We just dive into chatting and discussing, and we haven't introduced you. So yes, Stephen, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself?
2: My name is Stephen Godfrey. Do you want a professional? Sure. Do you want of a course. breakdown? Absolutely. Um, I've been a journalist for.
1: About 20 years. Mm-hmm. About 20 years now. You I mean, were, your famous come to fame was the...
2: Uh, I, I made a television show uh, about a, an investigation into the uh, underground world of college athletes being paid. And so a lot of it took place in Mississippi. I also wrote a piece in 2014 about how all that works the underground economy kind of like a little bit of a mobster thing but in right. college sports so right. yeah that's probably what i'm most known for i've done some work on espn and on tv i've done a lot of writing a lot of podcasting so
1: where did the um that bagman series it came out on vice was it vice the first show yeah the first one that had like six episodes
2: the first show came out on a now defunct platform okay and, and, you know, you're, you're now in new media, so you know all about this, where you have content, but the platforms go up and down quicker than the content, right? Right. So Verizon, the phone company, had a streaming service called Go90. Very ill-advised. Right. Okay, dumped a bunch of money into it. Go90 meant basically to take your phone and turn it 90 degrees. Very stupid name, but a marketing concept. So they went and shopped around for a bunch of content. I was at Vox, V-O-X Media, and not Fox. Um, I love those two are so close together because they would not, neither side would want to be conflated with the other. Um, made it there. Verizon had it, I think, for a year, right? And then when they shut down Go90, uh, the production company bought it
1: back and they kept it on YouTube. So, so you it's can on YouTube go watch it right, on YouTube right, right, right now. now. Yeah, yeah. I remember watching it when it came out. I right. when did it come out? Four years ago. Seventeen. Yes. So five, almost five years ago now. Yeah, yeah, when we started traveling for Blood Origins, I remember it coming out, and I was I was watching it in airports, waiting for the next episode to drop. It was excellent. Thank I, you. I really, really thoroughly Thank enjoyed, you.
2: enjoyed it. It was, um, and I'm sure you've already been through this now with the amount of content that you've done. You watch it, and you you can't separate yourself from it. Sure. And you only see you only see the crooked edges and the seams mm-hmm. and the things that you want to fix. Mm-hmm. And so, um, without spoiling too much, with the intended publication date of this conversation, there will be some other things around the corner. Oh, that, yeah. um, you know, you always you always want to do it again to correct your mistakes. I'll put it that way. I What so,
1: I remembered very distinctly and what I loved about it, and I, and I don't know if you've had this analogy put to you, but you, it, it was almost the Anthony Bourdain <laughs> of... Really, the way that you walked, the way that you were interviewed, it. the way that you no, walked I'll take down it. the street.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'll, take it. I'll take it. I was about... So so here's the terrifying thing, because I always view, I, I think most of your audience, if they're hunters, they probably are outdoors. They're probably leading, I would say, a little bit of a healthier lifestyle than a working journalist. What I don't, look, make a television show, right? Dare to dream. Don't be the executive producer, writer, and on-camera talent on a television show while you're also in the middle of the actual investigation that the show is about. Wow. This was the really ambitious project was, you know, investigative journalism is not, if you made a documentary as it happens, it's kind of boring. It's a lot of phone calls. It's a lot of waiting. You know, it's just like police work. And I grew up in in a police family. And so I had a documentary crew following me around as sources are working with me or against me or not working out or what have you. And it was the most stressful period of my entire life. More than having kids, more than all of it. I had. I mean, it was, it was a mess sideways because you, you know, when you make a television show or like when you're, when you're making content, you know, you have an idea, you have a script or maybe an outline or we're going to do this. When you wake up every day and the crew just looks at you and goes, what are we going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. It depends on who calls me back. It was a, it was a very stressful time. So I look back and I see a very pale, see a very pale, very stressed out dude Mm -hmm. who's about 20 pounds overweight. He was uh, drinking a considerable amount of rye whiskey at the Mm -hmm. end of shooting every day. Mm Mm-hmm. Um so it was not romantic but I am proud of the work we did definitely
1: yeah it's different you know it's very different when the, there is a camera ah and re- recording things and it is terrible and in the in the hunting space there is this fantasy there is this ambition to be famous okay and to become famous Whether you're an insta-influencer or you're a guy who's trying to make it, it means you have a camera crew with you. And unfortunately, when camera crews are with you, very often the authenticity of what you're doing disappears.
2: And what's funny to me about that is every part of hunting to me, I put under the umbrella of the outdoors. So... And you know, we can delineate all that in a second, Hunter, hunting, fishing, uh, preservationist, just someone who goes and bird watches, whatever it is. All of that to me, if you are interested in the outdoors, it's a form of catharsis and release mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the world that we operate in because we're constantly staring at screens to take a camera crew out into that place that really I think fulfills you in a lot of ways by virtue of the solitude mm-hmm. and the and the ability to reflect while you're mm-hmm. doing whatever it is you're doing, it seems like it's anathema almost to be worried about how is this going to look on Instagram right. when you're out in the woods. That would drive me insane.
1: Yeah, we've I've seen some some. <laughs> it's just a sign of the times that we're in, unfortunately. But I've seen people like celebrate like the shot that they've made. But due to poor editing Mm -hmm. on their part, the ending part of the celebration was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I forgot to cut the part where I just was like, oh, god, let me me just turn my phone off. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, 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 what just happened? Right. Well, it's
2: got to be terrifying because you can't reshoot it. (laughs) It happens. Well, you can. Oh, are you telling me now we're fa- are, are are we fabricating? Oh, of course. Oh
1: no, uh, there is no doubt that there is. I'm, there's very few. There's very few shows. Like Will no. Primos had a show called The Truth. Okay. Okay. And that was what they said. They said there's no retaking. Right. If you miss the shot, you miss the shot. True.
2: Documentarian Werner Herzog going out there. Yeah. yeah
1: what it is is it, it is it it is what it is is what it will be. This is the truth.
2: Do you think that the hunting audience or any audience is aware of, because you're now working in the entertainment industry, more or less, right? Yeah, I would say so. Okay, and I'm one of the people. I don't really put media up on the sacred pedestal. We're We're a form of consumption like anything else. Yeah. And I've also worked in television a couple other jobs. Do you think most people are aware of the fact that unscripted or nonfiction television, film, whatever, content is actually staged? The majority of it is edited to be something else. Mm-hmm. It is not authentic.
1: No, I don't. I think that, that obviously I, it,
3: I don't know. Shit, that's a good question.
2: Because for your brand and yeah. the conversations that you and I have had just as friends, the authenticity is sort of the cornerstone that you Correct. want to build on. Correct. And so if you miss a shot or the lighting is bad, or whatever. It is what it is. Right, it is what it is. You would hope at a certain point you can bridge, your audience can bridge over that because they have faith in you. Mm-hmm. They would rather it look a little messy. Right. And again, we talk about, like I can see the seams and the crooked edges. And maybe, I wouldn't say they want it, but they respect it because they know then that there is a level of authenticity. Right. Instead of having that weird reality show feeling where you can tell it's all chopped up and edited to sort of create a dramatic
1: moment that didn't exist. So the the... the the paradigm that you then face is more often than not, and luckily from a Blood Origins perspective, I really don't care about the number of views that I get through the hunting community, because that's not we built what we're building it for. We're building it so that someone from the non-hunting space can look at it and go, oh, I never realized a hunter is like this or is like that. Right. So, to me, the, the whole idea of views doesn't matter, and so the the fact that we're so authentic and that we, we're not doing it for the likes or for the follows or for the engagement makes it more authentic, but also don't have to worry about the likes and the engagement and the right. follows. Versus on the counter, the reason why it's all chopped up, the reason why it's f- staged or faked or whatnot is because that's what people like to sure. watch which drives your engagement, which drives your likes, which drives your follows? which drives. Well,
2: if you had a reality show and everyone was nice to one another, no one would watch.
1: Yeah, 100%. Proven,
2: right? You have to manufacture all that. That's why it's, is it scripted? No, but it's, it's designed to create an artificial c- conflict that isn't real, right? It's friction because that creates drama.
1: Oh, yeah. And, but yeah, in yeah.
2: your space, to me, it's
1: either real or it's not. Mm-hmm. Because well, it the- has to be from our perspective, right. from a story perspective, from a heart perspective. It has to be either real or we've thrown a camera on you and we did not get what we wanted out of you, or we realized that we, there wasn't much there. And we haven't had one of those yet. Touch wood. Wherever <laughs> there is wood. But I've never had I haven't had a dud yet, and I've interviewed 60 people, well, 70 people. But I also think you're not going
2: for necessarily this visceral, voyeuristic, Moment hunting. It's more about a the a testimonial. It's more about the individual. Yeah, and, no, we're and not
1: in that hunt. We don't, yeah. we don't, you know, we've done one or two hunting films, but we're not in the hunting space. Right. You don't have a GoPro on in the middle of the, in the, middle the, middle of the of at night. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no. No. So, are you a hunter? I am not. Steven?
2: You know this. I've I known do. you for 20 years, roughly, about two that? No, you got to, you got to the States in 03. Yeah. So eighteen years. Eighteen years, yeah. I have never hunted. Never had
1: the desire to hunt.
2: Oh, I've had the curiosity. We okay, curiosity. Oh, definitely. You and I have had this conversation today. Actually, we were Mm -hmm. we were talking. I like to maintain at least a working knowledge of of almost anything I can conversationally. Mm -hmm. It's something that I picked up from my old man. Where you just, it's great to know a lot about things in life. For sure, you know, it's great to be an expert in a field, but uh, you know. I, I kind of subscribe to that master of none theory. Where yeah, it's Jack supposed, of all trades,
1: master of none. Sure.
2: Um, I want to, whether or not I'm an active participant in something or not, at least have enough to keep a conversation going. And so to that end, you and I met in 2003 in Mississippi, North yep. Mississippi. Yep. Big hunting culture. Cool. I'm originally from Georgia. Big hunting um, culture. Big hunting culture. However, um, my my dad my entire, most of my family is law enforcement is police okay and i don't know i don't want to paint with too broad a brush here cuz i know there's law enforcement listening to this i feel like there's a, a, a decent amount of law enforcement maybe maybe in the rank and file the your your beat your, your your local law enforcement i think there's a first off i and i'm jumping way ahead i think there's a financial hurdle to hunting in america specifically in the south that has been Sort of imbued with a level of classism that takes the hunting element out of it, right? In the South, really? Oh, it's 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 a, a social hierarchy. I totally disagree. No, because I'm not. I came in yeah.
1: as a as a PhD student into Mississippi in two thousand and three, earning nothing. Okay, I, earning nothing, and you could still go hunt. And I went hunting. Well, because I, guess... I went to Walmart and I bought my thirty dollar bill bibs and right. got you know whatever and borrowed a a gun from a buddy. I think
2: what informed that vantage point for me was being in Oxford and I can remember being out and talking to friends and be like, Oh, we're going to go to, we're going to go to my hunting camp this weekend. Oh, we're going to go have okay. a party. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. And, and I have this mental image of a hunting camp and then I show up and I'm like, this is nicer than, ha- than houses I've lived in, you mm-hmm. know? So it's very, it, it, there's a wide swath of what hunting is encapsulated. Um, for whatever reason, my old man never hunted. Now he was a firearms instructor, SWAT, uh, HRT, my dad was started off as a sheriff's deputy, went through the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, up to the FBI. I'm leaving probably three or four acronyms <laughs> off here, but had a, a very storied career and, and basically worked in firearms in some capacity all day long. You know, he taught at Quantico, he was the guy who kicked in the door on the SWAT raid, you know, adrenaline junkie, all that stuff. Um, and his counterbalance to that was always fishing. Gotcha. So I developed the respect for and understanding the outdoors and did not, I'll just tell you this right now, the years in which you make your kids do things, and you and I are in this phase right now Mm -hmm. with our kids, where you're sort of forcing them to do stuff that they have absolutely no concept or respect for. Right. At the time, I did not understand the need to recharge in a solitary manner or the silence and the long gaps and being in the outdoors and the benefit it had to my father and the benefit that it had to your own mind. Mm -hmm. that is the one thing I look back on now and it is not anything that that is the number one benefit I think of of again going back to being in the outdoors period so moved to Mississippi uh moved all around the country I mainly grew up in DC with the FBI and when so when you and I met in Mississippi there I felt a barrier to entry now whether it was that of my own doing I don't know did I have a natural interest in hunting at the time no but as I as I moved to different parts of the South. I've, I've known so many people that hunt in some capacity that I definitely think I never had a stigma because of the way that I was raised and the fact that when you grow up around law enforcement, you grow up, you grow up around firearms. In my case, I grew up around a lot of firearms. Yeah. I didn't have that stigma. Mm-hmm. Being in the South and really loving the South, but, but also working in the media and living in New York City or working in television, having to go out to L.A., I know what the perceptions are, and I'm very, very defensive of the South. Mm-hmm. I can criticize the South, and I do often. Mm-hmm. It has a myriad problems. I do not tolerate criticism from the outside, mm-hmm. even when it's justified. It's, it's like a, a personal weakness of mine. Even when they're making a good point, I get very defensive mm-hmm. as if it's one giant family. So hunting is this an entire society. Right in the, in the parts of the United States where you and I live. Mm-hmm. And so I've always respected it, lived, lived adjacent to it. Uh, some of my wife's friends, their husbands, big hunters. And I like to, you know, I talked to them about it. But that's about it.
1: Has I know we were trying to get you hunting last year. Uh, maybe oh, the it year was before. pre-COVID. Yeah. Pre-COVID, yeah, we yeah, couldn't yeah. make it happen. Has anybody else invited you to hmm. go hunting?
2: I've had a couple invitations to, let me back up. I'll tell you a great story. Seminal meeting on an investigation I was working on. Okay. Trying to shake the trees on a source. This is, in, this is college football investigation stuff. Mm-hmm. And that hunting camp location comes up again. Okay. Right? So in the modern era, you go and meet someone we live in this time in which these phones are tracking our every movement and okay. they afford you a certain sense of security when you're going to meet someone that you're not sure about and it's not often that happens anymore it's not a Afford
1: sh- you a, s- a sense of security i.e someone can see where yeah, you I know are. where i'm
2: at right okay okay i'm gonna be at an address hey i got pinged and i would tell my boss at the time like i've met this individual it was that hectic of a meeting it was that uncertain of a meeting Okay. I didn't fear for my life or physical safety, but you always like to know where you're at. Again, okay. raised by a cop. Yeah. It's like you walk into the restaurant, and you take the one seat where you can see the front of the door. Okay. If mi- if military is listening to this, they know exactly what I'm talking about. I was, okay. I have never been military law enforcement, but I was raised that way. So, um, I get to the address, and I can't, I, I, w- I can't say where it's, where it's at, because I don't want to give this individual away or anything like that. It was in the south. Okay. Okay. Place you and I have been before. And then sure enough, I realized I'm meeting at like what amounted to be like a bait shop. And we were going to the hunting camp. And it was one of those moments where we drove and we drove and I'm following this truck and it's getting darker. And we go out to the hunting camp and I'm thinking, you know, this this is sideways fast. Bad cell phone service, the whole deal. And then the same damn thing happens, which is we get to the hunting camp and I walk in and I was like, it's this 3,000 square foot palatial hunting camp. It was a duck camp. It was Mm -hmm. beautiful. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was funny because that's the last time I've been in a hunting camp was to interview someone who was working with me confidentially on an investigation. And he felt like that was where he would be most comfortable. And when, you, when you're in that line of work, and, and you know this because you're interviewing people a lot, you are trying to get someone at their most comfortable. Mm-hmm. Right? You want them disarmed. You want, you want them disarmed. You want them not to be too guarded with responses right to think reflexively and just go yep. and just and sort of pour it out exactly and so i agreed to it and it was funny but i will say there was like a 15 mile stretch there where i was like this is incredibly weird because normally these meetings are you know they're it, it's not like the movies it's not that clandestine i've yep. had documents passed to me before where individuals didn't want them to be over an email server for various reasons you just go to a freaking starbucks you know <laughs> and but right. i end up in this i end up in this hunting camp and so sure enough we talked about duck hunting for the better part of 20 minutes before this guy felt comfortable enough to crack open a beer and talk with me. And sure. so there I am BSing my way through it because I married, I married a girl from Monroe, Louisiana. If you know anything about Monroe, Louisiana, it's that everyone and their brother duck hunts. Yep. So and yep. it, there's a ton of duck hunting. Done. So you've never
1: gone duck hunting with the in-laws? No,
2: it kind of tapered off just because of the ages of the kids in my father-in-law's family. And they got busier, big, big uh, Catholic Louisiana family. My sister-in-law, my wife's baby sister, just married an avid hunter, an outdoorsman, from Lafayette, Louisiana. And as you and I discussed, he goes and hunts all kinds of bird and does all this stuff in Kansas. And so he's invited me out before, yeah. But I think I'm kind of beholden to you at this point that when I go, I'll have to go with you. I just haven't figured out. I don't know how often you encounter this with non-hunters, but to me... And I, this is not uh, uh, saying this in a negative way. I would, to me, it's all hunting. In other words, I don't view going out and if we were to go traipse around the woods yeah. and shoot squirrel, yeah. any different than going to shoot elk in Canada.
1: Correct. Going it's to, all hunting. I Going
2: agree. to Canada. Going sorry. Going to Canada to hunt an elk sounds way cooler to me. Sure. Right. And there's sure. a romance to that. Yeah. But it it, it, it the function is you know. Really indifferent to what you're hunting, in my opinion.
1: No, it it, you're right. In our sort of in our brain, hunting is hunting. Whether you're hunting quail or you're hunting turkey or you're hunting elk, yeah, you're hunting sheep. It's all the same, and and the characteristics sort of are are sort of based in the foundation of woodmanship, sort of understanding the outdoors. And once you become a hunter, it's almost like a switch gets turned inside you which is when you drive down the road and you see a field you'll automatically be like oh what's in the field oh there's a deer back there oh how did that deer get there oh he must have come out that that back corner of that woodland okay maybe I should you know if I was going to hunt that deer I'd probably do this and your mind just automatically flips that way
2: it's funny you say that because my sister-in-law called me to tell me a month or two before she got married that her fiance they were in, I think, Oklahoma, where they live. And they passed over just a, a, a standard highway overpass. And yeah. he, f- without saying anything, kind of pulls over and gets out and goes and sort of views this terrain. And she's like, did he lose something? Did something right. go out the wind? You know, she has no idea. But it was because it was exactly that. He saw something that, I guess, intrigued him on some patch of land that he could potentially go out and, and work in.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So you're a non-hunter. Definitely, that has a curiosity to go hunting.
2: I definitely have a respect for it, and um, I'm probably. I will say this: I'm probably a bad interview subject because I'm very much at peace with the concept, even though, even well, though, no, I'm that's outside a, that's, of the
1: participation. No, it's not a bad interview subject. I'm not. I wasn't hoping you to. Well, no, be- I can talk to a
2: fence post. Trust me. <laughs> but I mean, like, it's the it's the idea of. I think that maybe when I was younger, maybe when I was a teenager. I was in, in, in Washington, D.C. for most of my teenage years. It def, I, I probably bought more into the stigma of it being unnecessary or cruel. But keep in mind, this is the 1990s, the early 1990s. Think, think about the media consumption that was available Yeah. and thinking, of, thinking about sort of the portrayal of a hunter in the media and what was out there. Right. Probably not a lot of fondness, probably not a lot of sympathetic portrayals when you think sure, about it. Of course. I mean, it really just doesn't... You know, when you think about a television, you think about a mainstream television show years ago before there were 500 television shows, if there was a hunter or someone in camouflage, they're redneck, right? They were. Correct. They were poor. Correct. Uh, they were probably violent, probably white male, right? It, yep. was, it was just very much a very. Lower simple-
1: intelligence. Sure,
2: definitely. And when you, you know, I would encounter it reading. That was another thing, too. I'm a writer, and so, you know you get to a certain point point; it can be Hemingway or Faulkner or it can be pretty much any, any aspect of Southern literature. I think you have to keep an open mind to it. It's the, the bottom line is it is ubiquitous. doesn't even do it service. If you go two or three generations back and you're, you are white and Southern especially, and you are not of means. And I, what I mean is you didn't, you're not from some sort of privileged societal, you know, you're not Charleston money or you're, you're right. not New Orleans money. Like this is an incredibly long-winded way of saying like, my bloodline is good Georgia white trash. And so the idea of me and my generation looking back and saying, oh, well, hunting's cruel or hunting's unnecessary. Hunting was a functional part of life on a daily basis, mm-hmm. less than a hundred years ago for the people in my bloodline. Oh,
1: absolutely. No, and I've heard someone say that we're probably a generation away from our kids not knowing how to camp. Oh, without a doubt. So we're we're shifting. The whole society is shifting. And in in my brain, and this is where I want your opinion, in my brain, the reason why hunting is getting such a bad rap is that we, society, when I say we, society is, is getting more and more and more disconnected from, dare I say, reality more and more disconnected from the outdoors yes. and Mother Nature and what Mother Nature does and that Mother Nature is cruel and she's violent and, and most importantly, that death is inherent to life. Yes. And so you get sort of sanitized now. I think the vast majority of society gets sanitized or is sanitized away from death. And so when they see death, like a hunter killing something, that's bad. Sure. But they don't mind going to the steakhouse. Yeah, but there's no death involved with right. that, though, Stephen.
2: Well, the other thing is this. You bring up a good point. There's no death and death anymore. We're selling $50,000 caskets that are airtight. <laughs> For what reason? Mm-hmm. My parents have been so insistent as they enter a particular phase of their life. I know I'm 40 and my parents are in their late 60s, but I think they, because they went through this with their family, they said, you know, when we die... if it, it, they they were so angry about the cost associated with funeral services because it sort of cauterizes death. Mm-hmm. Buying all these fancy things for funerals. My, my my dad has jokingly said, like, put me in a hefty garbage bag and throw me in the river, whatever. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm part of the earth now. He And he says that because he has an incredibly firm relationship with his faith. Yeah. And he doesn't think about the corporal. He doesn't think about his. I mean, it, it to, to him, it's nothing. Yeah. But... We've gotten to where we don't want to address death in any possible manner, right? Right. That we don't even want to, we especially don't want to think about the functional death that we, that we are, we're causing
1: just so we can roll through the drive-thru every day.
2: Nobody yep. wants to think about the bolt in someone's, in a cow's head, but no. damn, I sure like going to Whataburger.
1: Yeah, 100%. So in your, you know, you live in the media world. Yes. What? do we need to do from a hunting perspective Mm. as a non-hunter you're looking at it how what do we as hunters need to do to change perceptions or change narratives wow
2: i think there's a variety there and this is me spitballing. I
1: didn't make sure, a list of or anything.
2: Uh, I would say, first, it's the variety of it. And it's not so much. A, I had a negative connotation with hunting because for a while it was, to me, a class-based thing. See, you came to the States and you knew how to hunt because you are from, I did not. You didn't know how to hunt at all. Negative.
1: But you, but you grew up around the hunting culture? Nope. None. Came out of a town of eight and a half million people. It was right. as if somebody was coming out of New York City okay. and was going to live in Oxford, Mississippi, for the first time. Okay, all right. So I'd, I'd shot shotguns. Okay. And I'd been in the game ranging business, so I knew how to handle a, a I rifle and stuff like right. that.
2: Right. I remember you. You had a. You had an outdoors. Ex- you had experience in the outdoors in a way. Correct. I think The average American did
1: not. Correct. Okay. I'd give you that.
2: Um, I think that. Accessibility and variety have to be I mean, look, I could say that about any business in America. But before we get to the stigma of killing, yeah. right, which is sort of the bigger it's kind of the amount to climb. I think when you're talking about media narrative, accessibility and variety are two huge things, because it was always sort of drilled into me, and it was very visually evident that this was something that you either, either the very, very poor did or the very, very privileged did. OK? the very, very privileged did the buckboard uh, quail hunt in the yep. beginning of A Man in Full by Tom Wolf, which mm-hmm. is about the society in Atlanta, or the very, very poor, you know, went out and shot squirrel and rabbit mm-hmm. and made All a stew. Plot. Right. And right. We, we make those jokes because my wife's from Louisiana, but like that, there's there, there's an inherent culture in that. Well, people will go out. That's hunting if you go out and, you know. Yeah shoot varmint and so there was nothing in the medium right there was there was nothing casual about it and and Mm -hmm. i don't know if i I would not wouldn't be surprised if the hunting community said to me we don't want to be considered casual and we don't want to break down certain barriers but it is uh it is from the outside a closed society okay so you're either born into it uh, you are a snowflake in this regard. Mm-hmm. The idea of picking it up, even in your phase of life, because I will say this: the hunters I know were hunting at nine, yeah, and now they're sixty. And I know a lot of football coaches, and and the ones who hunt were the ones who hunted because of where they grew up and the fact that if they weren't playing a sport, they were hunting. Okay, that was sort of the full range of their recreation. So I think you have to break into the middle ground, right? I think you have to find a way. To, and I don't have a solution for you here tonight, but there has to be a way to—you to, to, know what I think it is? You talk to me all the time about it's relationship-based. Right. It's connecting you to something larger than yourself, yep. but yep. also helping you understand yourself. It's spiritual. Mm-hmm. It, and it has a level of transcendence. These are all things that we talk about in, when we refer to self-help mm-hmm. or we talk about um, the therapy community, which is widely popular right now post-COVID. Yep. If it's been proven, and it has, that being closer to nature and being more involved in it and understanding and respecting it is is good for you and and not being engaged with a cell phone for those eight hours a day is yep. better for you, Yeah. then the hunting community, I think, could Maybe use that... Move, move into that conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because the, the, and the next thing I would bridge to is, okay, now let's get, to, let's get to the mountain. Let's get to the murdering. Let's get to the bloodiness, right? Or well, one
1: that's technically, it's not murder. Of course.
2: Meat is murder, right? That's what I was told, right? Meat is murder. Meat is murder, right? Well,
1: yeah, well, yeah, I guess, but right. murder is... Uh, you're tasty, person, tasty murder. <laughs> but murder is human.
2: Exactly. So here's my point. The more... You have these conversations, because I've seen you do this with people who are far afield from this culture, Mm -hmm. about the fact that hunters are going to be a hell of a lot more invested in the environment, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: in biology, in biomes, right? Hunters will be concerned about global warming. Hunters will be concerned about water pollution. Hunters will be concerned about, and so on, and so on, and so on, right? Encroaching on land. That thread is inconvenient for a lot of people who want to criticize hunting culture or gun culture or whatever whatever it is in the United States. And that's where it is a gray area, right? I wouldn't get into a gun control conversation because I don't think it really exists in this space. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is, every hunter I know knows more about the environment one that they live in sure and then two, wherever it is they hunt which is usually adjacent you know some people will drive hours and hours but most people have a camp that they could get to by the end of a business day Mm -hmm. i think that's fair to say at least in Mm -hmm. the southeast um those people are knowledgeable of and mindful of the environment in a way in which no other i I, I guess hobbyist that i know of is yeah
1: no fair to say yeah the investment that a the investment that a hunter makes on the land, in terms of restoring it, in terms of improving it, in terms of keeping it clean, in terms of understanding its his deer herd or her deer herd and how it changes over time. And oh, you know, there seems to be this this you know this doe drop twins over here and watching those twins grow. And oh, one's a buck and one's a doe. And I think you're you're nailing it on the head that we don't often translate the magnitude of the understanding of the system that we live and breathe in to understanding why we kill. Yes. Okay, so killing, though it is the mountain, killing is what separates hunting from hiking. Yes. Okay, so it it is inherent to what we do. Right. It is the finality of the lifestyle it's the finality of the purpose of why we do what we do what is that is hunting
2: i think that generationally we're in a bit of a pickle here regardless of hunter or not because we are now finding newer and crazier and and just completely illogical ways to tell ourselves we're going to live forever we're an aesthetic culture Mm -hmm. okay And this, and I could go a million different directions with this, but I think if you're listening to this, you can probably instantly relate to something. Maybe it's, you know, someone who's completely wrapped into the aesthetics of social media, or, you know, someone that's worried about plastic surgery, or, you know, someone that's so dietary focused beyond belief because they think it's going to add 20 years to their life. Hunting, as you just said, brings you face to face, all five senses. Yep in the most visceral way possible, to the end of things. Yep. To an end that we have yet to, one, fully understand, and two, accept.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Most people don't like to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Again, painting with a broad brush, most hunters I know casually have a pretty good firm handle on the concept of, I am not going to live forever. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be around forever. Mm-hmm. And I think that, most other aspects right now of society people are moving away from the idea of no one wants to think about death and there's a rationalization that occurs in a lot of people well if i go out and kill something what does that say about me why do i deserve to live right these are you know these are the kind of conversations i've heard from people far afield from the hunting culture
1: so how do we how do we bridge that gap then because death is inherent to what we do mm-hmm. death is now being sanitized out of Sure. The non-hunting majority's culture.
2: I, well, I, I like what you said a second ago about the, it, it, separating it from a hike. So let's start with the hike, all right? People are spending an insane amount of money to, and this was pre-COVID, and I, I believe it'll be even more so after the pandemic is really over across the world, to travel, to have experiences, yeah. to have those tangible moments. That are usually attached to something like the outdoor. Something. Uh, maybe go to Yellowstone and see the geyser. Go to the Grand Canyon. I think that the closer you get to nature, to me, that's the next step. Right? So if you camp and you camp and you go and you hike. Like you're never going to sell me on going on an eight mile hike. You know, if, if, you and I have been friends for a long time, but if, hi- if hiking was your thing, that hiking's your thing, that's great. I love to have friends with a diverse sort of range of interests, but this is something that, so, you know, th- that is a hobby. It, this is a lifestyle for reasons, because I think, and this is me putting words in your mouth, there's a, a functionality to it, a spirituality to mm-hmm. it, and it harkens back to something that's far more psychological, primal, right? Mm-hmm. Hiking is, is moving your body. So my point is, and I'm meandering, Get back to nature first. Yeah, Understand and respect it. And then I think you can move people in that direction. I really do. I mean, the other thing is this. This is a dodgy subject. We're talking about gun culture. We don't shy away from guns in any aspect of our culture. Mm-hmm. We condemn gun violence, mm-hmm. right? But video games, television, film, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, yeah. Right. We as Americans identify, I mean, you know, children inherently are are, are making the gun motion at a very young age, regardless of how sanitized you keep their media consumption. Yeah. So this idea that America, I find it to be a hollow argument against hunting that people are, oh, well, you know, know, I'm out there with a gun. Mm. Unless you are fundamentally averse to firearms, and there are some people. Sure. By and large, I don't think the gun is the barrier. I really don't. Right. So I think the next thing is this. You have to, you have to preach the understanding of the wildlife that you are hunting. Okay, so you and I again we're friends, so we've had casual conversations, and we'll talk about what you do. But most people don't understand population control or 100%. culling or management. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. They don't understand that. Well, one that hunters are probably going to protect and preserve certain species. Right. Okay. But two, also, what the effect of if left completely... Correct. You know, completely... Uh, the consequences. ...unmanaged. And so those are uncomfortable conversations.
1: Yep. Because things are cute, right? Yep.
2: We cartoonize everything.
1: Yep. It's consequence. We talk about consequence all the time. And unfortunately, again, our, our hunting culture, our hunting community really doesn't think about those kinds of things because they don't have to. Right. Because they're very introspective in terms of, I'm talking to other hunters, and really so at at the end of the day, all I'm trying to do is show another hunter how good a hunter I am, and so I've got this big, you know, trophy Absolutely. shot of an animal. Instead of thinking, and that's what we keep saying, the savior to hunting is going to be thinking, putting... You're thinking through a lens of what a non-hunter sees or in or will get when they engage with you. Have you told them about the amount of time that you spent doing habitat restoration work? Have you told them how many deer you actually passed up before you shot that animal? Because a lot of people would think, "Oh, that he just walked out and shot that animal, and here it is." Versus you probably sat for a hundred hours this season. Waiting for this one moment, right? You know, invested all that time and effort and energy into doing that, and you probably saw 150 deer. And w- why didn't you take that? Why didn't you kill all 150?
2: All right, I will throw an asterisk in real fast. Part of the barrier to me not having hunted was in Mississippi, specifically. Deer hunting is, I think, the most popular. Is that Correct. fair to say? Yep. Okay. Yep. No, I will say this: nothing about deer hunting appealing to me. So that, that was the first one. That was the first time where I was like, I really don't want to go sit in a deer stand. Mm-hmm. No, I have no affinity for the damn things because if anyone's driven at night across the mm-hmm. southeast, mm-hmm. like it's not that. Yeah. Um, it was just the approach. That, that is only meant to be a humorous aside. That was the only time where I thought I'd rather be waist deep in cold water in January somewhere in Louisiana, you know, with God knows what floating next to me trying to shoot a duck, then for whatever reason, the deer thing, it never clicked Mm -hmm. with me. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think the issue is this, you are asking questions that most of your brethren have not thought to ask and do not feel it necessary to answer because proselytizing is how you build a faith. We know this, right? It, it's one of the few fundamental tenets of the world religions. Uh, certain world religions, they don't proselytize quite as much, Judaism. But bottom line is, if you're building a faith and you're building an understanding and you're building a, a, a shared belief structure, it can be politics too, you proselytize. You go out and you spread the word. Correct. Most hunters I know don't do that. Most hunters I know, I think, again, kind of going back to my old man going out into the woods of Georgia, I think it's a release And I think it's 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 a little bit of a defiant identity for them because Mm -hmm. some of the what I've come across working with, um, working in the in the American football community, working in knowing guys in MMA, Mm -hmm. pro wrestling. I worked in pro wrestling for a couple years. Guys who hunt sort of kind of throw it out there on you. Yeah, I'm a hunter. What about it? Right. If we're if we're really working on this you are more of an ambassador than i've ever known of anybody in the hunting community right because i think you're the only person i know who's ever been like well what can i do to like get you to come out and experience this Mm -hmm. most people in the hunting community i've found are borderline proud when people say i have no interest in hunting right so they have more for me more for me there i have this secret you don't know about Mm -hmm. it's i'm closer to nature i'm more of a man. There, there is a masculinity a, a aspect to it, which is kind of funny to me because watching some of your content, you know, you can disabuse people of that pretty quickly if they pay sure. attention. But, sure. um, I think hunters have more hunters have to want to do this, mm-hmm. and we, and by this I don't mean hunt. I mean go out and talk to people about why yeah. they do yeah. what they do. Yeah.
1: No, and it's so difficult to get them to do it in the right way, right? Because they're they're almost their natural reaction would be, I hunt. And if you don't like it, I don't give a damn. Exactly. Because this is my right, yes. and this is what I do, and I don't care. Right. Versus, again, the thing that we keep saying is, okay, if, if you just had to stop and think for a second, and the action that you're about to do or the, the engagement, the way that you're going to engage this individual will determine whether or not hunting is around for your kids and your grandkids one day. Yes. How would you approach it? okay, you probably are going to approach it a lot different because you knew that this thing that you love so much is on the line and that it could be lost. But, unfortunately, to your point about our community, we're, we're so introspective that at, we, don't even th- we, don't, we don't ever think in the long term. The long term is next season. That's about as long term as we think. We don't think about, oh, this lifestyle Needs to be around for another fifty years. Sure. And what I'm doing right now isn't helping that. Well, we've talked about the Rogan thing too. I think another aspect of this is specifically meat consumption. And mm-hmm. you and I, you just Well this happened in COVID, of course. Just yeah, you and I have the it.
2: Roof. A, we we've kind of joked about this. Whatever. You know, like killing your own meat, knowing where your meat came from. Mm-hmm. And I think celebrities like Joe Rogan are a good example of that. Where, let's go stem to stern. Because I don't know a lot of people who come back from hunting trips and tell me how great it was to actually take down whatever it is they took down. That's usually not the first thing they tell me about. They right. usually tell me about where they went, what the right. weather was like, experience, or hey, we came across this, or you know. And again, this is casual, and they know they're not talking to a non, or they know that they're talking to a non-hunter, so there's probably not a high level of specificity involved. But I think it's the experience, but it's also if you want to be really progressive, there's a genuine concern about the mass production of especially red meat in this country. Oh. Yeah. Right? Yep. And so if you're going out and you know and you're hunting whether you're hunting in specifically or not, or if it's just not coming from the supply pipeline, if you will, and I don't want to try and get into the slander or the libel thing, but people have legitimate concerns about the meat the the way that meat is created and, and, and delivered And again, that process we talked about earlier Mm -hmm. about taking the death out of it, taking the awareness out of it, taking everything, taking everything out of it to where you're just buying a pack of meat in the grocery store and really having no other knowledge of, of what it is. Mm -hmm. If you and I were to drive down to the local store right now and buy a pack of 80, 20 ground beef, you don't know anything else about it. Nope. I think literally that's it. That's all the FDA requires. Maybe a sell by date. Yep. And that's it. The advantage so far that I have learned is that if you are hunting your own meat, you know everything about it. Correct. Absolutely everything. And if you're cleaning and dressing and doing all that kind of processing it all yourself, that is one of the things anecdotally that I really enjoyed and picked up in, you know, my wife's from Louisiana. We met in Mississippi. I'm from Georgia and I live in Tennessee, all hunting cultures Mm -hmm. by and large. All of those states I just named, someone will come by at a particular time of year and drop off deer meat. Yeah, and if I know the person, I trust it implicitly. I'd probably trust. I should probably trust it more than supermarket ground beef. Right, hundred percent. And that hasn't been addressed at all because, again, I think this is something hunters hunters know. It's part of y'all's culture. Sure, but there's you don't have a reason to proselytize.
1: Yeah, and it's just it's just you know doing simple things. I asked you the question, you know, what can we do? You know, I have some crazy ideas. Like for instance. The cost. The cost of an ounce of red meat hunted mm-hmm. is probably ludicrous. Yes. Okay, it's probably, sure. gosh, I wouldn't even, a hundred bucks a pound. Probably. 150 bucks a pound, 200 bucks a pound, right? It's probably the most expensive meat that you could get. Right. Yet, we as hunters want to give it away. Right. We don't want to hold on to it. We want to give it away. We we give it away to people, right? But then I've never heard of someone going to the grocery store and buying 20 ribeyes <laughs>
2: and giving them away.
1: And giving them away. It doesn't happen.
2: I'm glad they do, because, or I'm glad they I'm glad the you know, the former not the latter because you know, almost every year my wife ends up making, you know, deer sausage gumbo, and yep. it's one of the best meals of the winter um i i think my assumption is is that it's not about the meat and i also think that hunters are fulfilling a primal urge function by going to their neighbors i mean you think about it this way robbie it doesn't happen a lot in society we hope it doesn't happen again we talked we've joked a little bit about like how crazy supermarkets were at the beginning of covid but let's just say you have a bad weather situation. Yeah. You have a hurricane in Florida. You have an ice storm in Arkansas, something like that. For a hunter to swing by to their neighbor's home, maybe they're disabled, maybe they can't get out, maybe they're
1: elderly. Happens all the time.
2: Right? And and say, hey, here's here's three pounds of deer sausage. Yeah, yeah. Or th- here's a here's, uh, duck or whatever. Yeah, it doesn't sure. matter. That is the difference. It, you're getting down to the the sustenance and sort of life and death thing. I don't want to be too dramatic about it, but it's true yeah right People pass away all the time in bad storms because of their inability to get some of those creature comforts that they rely on mm-hmm. so um I think when hunters do that, I think it fulfills something in them you know i' I uh read a lot of like Norse history, and the hunter. In, in those religions in the pagan religions plays a big role because it's essentially provider, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It gives to the people. Mm-hmm. So a little, a little bit of a tangent, but I think, I think the hunters would probably agree that they liked to do that. No, they I don't g- care about paying for it. Totally, yeah, yeah. totally
1: agree. I think yeah. we do a terrible job of showing it. Well, Why it, are we not showing that, right? Why don't you take your cell phone yeah. in a selfie mode and say, hey, I'm walking down the street with some deer meat, so I'm going to give it to the neighbor.
2: Well, because I think also a lot of this is just disassembling some, some male psychology thing here, too. It's, not, it's probably not in the average hunter's no, but wherewithal is. To, to be that kind of ambassador. <laughs> they could. I'm No, I, I, you're, no, they're, you're they're, saying they have the
1: potential. They have the potential, but they're not thinking that way, no, is what I'm saying. They never is have. They're thinking more of... Well, Robbie, when's the last time we as a society celebrated the hunter?
2: When was the last time in America, or hell, but well before this country existed, mm-hmm. we celebrate the hunter? It's not, It's it's been generations. Mm-hmm. You know, I told you earlier that, that hunting was presented to me anecdotally, socially, as either the occupation of the extremely poor or this sort of plaything of the extremely rich. mm mm-hmm. I think about how far a cry that, that is from our real ancestors, right? right. When you go way back. Right. The hunter was the most important member of any tribe. Yep. On any continent. Yep. And so that's another issue. Mm-hmm. Right? We think we've replaced that. And so I think it's incumbent upon you, the hunter, to explain passionately but patiently, emphatically, but with empathy why. Monsanto and ConAgra and McDonald's have not replaced going out and taking down a bison or elk or whatever, you know, whatever. Right. No, I agree. Because from the little bit I know about it, I can see some good there. And from the little bit I know about the conservation efforts, I know there's good there. Mm -hmm. I do find it funny that. Hardcore pro environmentalist, and I—I I would consider myself an, uh, someone who votes with an environmental concern pretty high up the list because I'm worried about my grandkids all—all all being born with asthma, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Because I live in a major city, I live in Nashville. I can only imagine if I was raising kids in L.A. right now, right? Right. Those people that are at the forefront of these conversations would hunters would probably be the last group that they would embrace. Yep. but there's a lot of shared information. There's a lot of shared passion there. Yep. so I think both sides kind of probably put their pitchforks down. Yep. because there's a lot of the rest of us that are just going from one air conditioned building to another seven days a week. <laughs> we go to an air conditioned building with a steeple. Some of us do on Sunday, mm-hmm. or you know, it, it that that's it. That's our or we pay to come to a beach. Yep. we pay to go to a lake, and what do we do when we get to the beach or the lake? We 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 boil it down to its bare, like oh we're gonna go out and put the chair down and we're running the waves and then we run back into the air. You know, we don't have. I I honestly think we don't have a good relationship with the outdoors. I know I don't, and I and what kills me, is that I know every time I'm in the outdoors, regardless of the season or where I'm at, I am mentally better for it. Right after the fact. Correct. So I can only imagine coupling that with something as visceral. Um, and this is kind of a writer's term, but there's a narrative to hunting. I could only imagine what that's like, you know.
1: Yeah, it's game changing.
2: So I just got to figure out what
1: I'm going to hunt. It's game changing. What do you
2: recommend to it? What do you recommend if you're if you're coming in flat? It's like going to Waffle House for the first time. How do you explain Waffle House <laughs> for the first time? You it know? all
1: depends, man. It all depends on. I think you know, for someone like you that you said the deer hunting is not what I want. Sounds like you want something social, and there's plenty of social type hunts. That's why I said I want to take you that, quail hunting. But
2: you also know that I'm not a huge fan of people I don't know. That's
1: quail correct. Hu- okay, so quail hunting. That's All right. why I said we need to go quail hunting. Okay, you need to go quail hunting with me, and we go with Ratty, and people right. that you're very comfortable with. Yeah, and it's almost like, and it, there's a, you know, if I go up
2: to, so if I go up to somewhere like Canada, like if I go and do the big one the first time, okay. Which is sort of my mentality. It's a stupid mentality, grant you this. Yeah. What am I hunting? Elk? In Canada? Yeah.
1: Bear? Bear? Black Actually bear. Actually, go probably. Hunt,
2: a, hunt a black bear. Oh, yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, there's there's a very good population of black bear in Canada. And okay. Hunt them hard, and you'll All see right. a bunch of bears. You'll see a lot of bears close. Yeah. Up close and personal. Okay.
2: All right. Yeah, Take that's,
1: it. there's, you know, it, it, again, it's it's. I have been informed I don't want to hunt a boar. Why not pigs? Why not? Apparently, they're tough and mean. They're tough and mean, but they're freaking tasty. Yes, pigs. Well, pigs. I I can't confirm a pig is tasty. The pork chops that I've gotten (laughs) out of wild pig is the best tasting pork chop out of Texas I've ever had. Okay. All right. But pig hunting is fun hunting. It's you know driving around, finding them, getting out of the car, stalking them, putting a good shot on them.
2: What about so? What is your do you have a least favorite style of hunting or or no, none of it? I like it all. Your equal opportunity.
1: Yeah, I like it all. I'm not a. I wrote an article as me trying to be a journalist once back in the day. I said like versus love. Okay. And I used to be a like to hunt kind of guy, i.e. in duck hunting, in duck hunting specifically. The worse the weather. Typically the better, better the hunt.
2: Right, right. And I, I have was heard like, this. I
1: was like a, oh man, it's raining. Mm, I don't want to really go hunting in the rain. I want to you know I want to be comfortable. I don't want to be too cold. I want blue skies. And I let the birds come in shoot a couple of birds. Oh, I like to hunt. But when you get exposed to the cold and the misery and the terrible weather conditions Yet, when you're out there, the ducks want to be exactly where you are. Right. And the experience of just hearing those, you know, those fighter jets coming over you, just the, the air whistling through their wings, and just, they're just pounding in there, and you stop shooting because you're just like, what is going on here? And it's, and it's pure misery. Right. Don't get me wrong. You're, not, it's, you're uncomfortable, you're wet, you're everything. But you're like, wow, this is why we do it. And you almost transcend from liking hunting to loving hunting. So it, it 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 really, they all have different aspects. Turkeys, it's all about the call. And then elk is like turkey hunting on steroids. And then the sheep hunting is all about the mental and physical aspect of the hunt itself, right? It's finding the sheep at 8,000, 9,000, 10,000, 12,000 feet after eight days looking for a legal oh, sheep and taking that sheep. So that's that's the extreme sport sort of version. Everything from a social walk through the woods, shooting quail, underdogs, to whatever you want.
2: So what you're describing to me is, is again, a wide array of experiences. Mm -hmm. I think it's incumbent upon your, your tribe, if you will, to display as much of that diversity as possible. Because it it's it it cannot be you know a Billy Bob with the orange vest right and the pickup truck. There's more that, to
1: hunting than that.
2: Yes, I say that as a certified generational white trash from Georgia. I have a 20-year-old pickup truck, but it has to be there has to be a variety to it, right? Because that's the other thing too that uh you know when I. Every everyone hunts something specific, I've found. You know, everyone has a, has a thing. You're, you're probably the, the exception in that you're sort of agnostic and do it all, but most people have the thing they do, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, a better display of that, I think, is a big thing. Yeah. It's funny because I knew I was inherently interested in the experience without having any interest in the experience, like on a subconscious level. I don't know if you remember this. There was a book when you and I were in Oxford at the same time. Uh it was like a coffee table book of photography of the state of Mississippi, it was called Mississippi okay real just exactly what if you have any experience in the state of Mississippi, you probably can start rattling off all the places that there's photos of the square in Oxford, juke joints in Clarksdale, et cetera on you know the the wetlands on the coast, et, mm-hmm. et cetera and then the same photographer that had that book, I think the following year, came out with another coffee table book. And I loved the Mississippi book. I gave it as a gift, and you know, it was really beautiful, and I think, it was, I think it's still on our coffee table. And then I very naively, the next year, there was a book, same photographer, same style book, same font, if I have this correct, and it was called First Shooting Light. And I thought, oh, damn, he, he, he has a second book out. The photographer has another book. Because I thought First Shooting Light meant the light the aperture that you need to shoot a camera. So sure. I, shot a, I shot, you know, when I worked in newspapers. I did not understand that it meant first shooting light. But I flipped through the book and still didn't figure it out. And I was like, God, these places are so beautiful. Mm. The, the book's about hunting. I, I mean, I was halfway through flipping through this book before I realized that this was just about photography related to hunting in Mississippi and the Delta. I think yeah, it was you yeah, know, yeah. Arkansas and West Tennessee. And so I, that I'm interested in. Mm. You know all the places that whiz by when you're on these interstates. Yeah, yeah. That's the place where I feel like I could probably stop and take these little, little black mirrors that we all carry around and mm-hmm. shut those off for a mm-hmm. while, and come out clearer of mind and better for it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, one day we're going to do it. Yeah. And uh, we'll, as we said, we'll record it, and it'll be good testimony to what. What you experienced, and Absolutely. whether it changes you or not. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you. Steve. Thanks for
2: uh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Is everyone aware of your, the, the this uh, your soccer connection too? Mm. You were you're, an, you're a, a color analyst. I was so proud. I remember putting it up on my Instagram. <laughs> you were a color analyst on the SEC Network.
1: That's correct. For multiple games, right? Multiple seasons. Yeah. Yep.
2: It, it, yep. Look, if you if you watched any soccer on the Southeastern Conference Network. And you heard a South African, slightly Australian accent.
1: That was you. South African accent.
2: No Aussie in there at all.
1: No Australian.
2: Very proud of that. You
1: were quick to correct me. On well, that's that. it for today. Great. All right, we'll, we're signing off. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.